Good morning, everybody. It's always difficult to schedule all the activities at church and even the high tech of lighting the Advent candle. Do you light it first? Do you do it all at once? Sorry, Mary, you've been preempted by the pastor who triple checks everything. She's only going to light one candle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Well, we have a lot of announcements, so let me see if I can get through them. Youth choir is meeting for practice immediately after church. The little ones will be up here on the platform, and I'll need two volunteers to move the pulpit right after, so we can just slide it over that way. And then the older youth, if there's such a thing, um, are going to be in the cottage. And... Please note on your calendar, it's not in the bulletin, but tonight at 6 o'clock sharp, if you're late, you'll miss it. But tonight, 6 o'clock sharp, we're having candlelight communion here and light refreshments and a time of fellowship immediately after. If you've never come, come. It's a beautiful time. It's more than just seeing how many pews can be dripped with candle wax. It's it's a family event uh, and... It'll make you cry, even if you're a tough rock like I am. Um, Yeah, and you know I cry a lot, right, Caroline? (laughs) But please, please come. It's a wonderful time of singing, and it's my most favorite time of the year. There's a true church conference coming up soon, see Isaac. And there will be no Sunday school, Christmas, or New Year's. But on New Year's, we're having morning Communion. Morning communion? We'll have communion on uh, the first. In the morning. Yes. Yeah, okay, I'm getting confused. And, and at dinner. I, I got that. Okay. <laughs> Just the case. <laughs> and if you haven't noticed, we're going to have dinner. Um, so please show up for that. And then. Just some books, like I I love books. There are two books from John MacArthur, The Supremacy of Christ. Uh, Naomi might want this because there's a horse on the front. And 15 Words of Hope, there's a lamb on this one, but they'll be on the back. But we're starting a new Sunday school uh, adult ministry training class on January 8th. We're taking two Sundays off. Gordon finished. Uh, Gordon, excellent job uh, on Jonah. If you have never been in one of Gordon Hall's classes, God has gifted him an incredible mix of humility, humor, teaching directly, but also drawing the class in. It's an incredible gift you have. Um, But the next session we're going to do is going to be at least 10 weeks on uprooting anger. Now, you might think you're not an angry person. Well, that's okay. If you're not an angry person, this book also teaches how to deal biblically with people that are angry and to help them through it. Um, I was working through this, and I, I, I let Gail borrow it, and she just clung on to it. She says, this is more than just anger, dealing with anger. It's, it's dealing with your heart biblically. And if, like, shepherding a child's heart gets to the root of the heart issues, not just surface stuff, the same kind of thing here. And 
I tried to get the book back, but she got angry when I was trying to get my book back. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so I got yeah. So I got her her own book, but I have copies of these. I would suggest that you pick one up early and start working through it. It's a well-written book, um, and it, it's very helpful, very practical. Amen. Thank you, Andy. Uh, this is a great time of year, and again, uh, as Andy mentioned, I encourage you to be out tonight at 6 if you can uh, to begin our Christmas uh, week here. and. Um, have a good time of singing some carols together, um, lighting the candles, and um, receiving communion tonight. Um, we'll also receive communion on the first Sunday of the year as well, uh, which is January 1st. But I'm looking forward to next Sunday, which is Christmas Day. And as Andy mentioned, we're not having the Sunday school hour, so that'll give you a little extra time uh, to get the kids um, back to um, dressed up. I guess they'll be up bright and early, I'm sure. Uh, but in any case, you can come on in here early and worship Christ. I, I remember, um, I guess, what is it, every seven years it um, repeats itself. Um, uh, but the last time we had Christmas here on uh, the Lord's Day, it, it was just really a beautiful thing. We do want to worship Christ on Christmas. It's kind of hard to do at times, but uh, this makes it a little more um, appropriate to begin uh, Christmas Day in worship of Christ, and so we look forward to that. This morning we do, as Andy mentioned, have these lighting of these candles, and I'd like to go ahead and invite Michael and Mary. I think you're lighting today's candle. We have already talked about those things. This reminds us of things about Christ, the hope that we have in Christ, the love that we have in Christ, and the joy that we have in Christ. And if you want to follow along in your worship, front of your worship folder, Michael and Mary will lead us in lighting this candle of peace today. Let's prepare to worship Christ this morning, particularly to be reminded of the peace of God that we have in Christ Jesus, because his sovereign pleasure rests on those that have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a moment to cherish that in your own heart, to prepare your heart privately to worship God here today publicly, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Take a moment now and pray. Thank you. 
Father, what an incredible privilege it is for us to be able to gather together as your people to praise your holy name. I'm thankful that this gathering of your saints, we know who Christ is, and we cherish the thought of you sending your Son, taking on human flesh, beginning at infancy and living through all stages of life, and truly know our condition, but has come to save us from our condition, to save us from our sin. We respond in great praise and joy to you. Thank you for the hope that has been granted to us in Christ Jesus. Not wishful thinking, but a great certainty of our hope. May we continually look forward to the return of Christ, that blessed hope, the appearing of Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray in the meantime, as we live now, by your pleasure, granted this revelation of Christ in this earth, Though there are, is great turmoil, chaos, and confusion from day to day, I pray for your people that we would indeed have the very peace of Christ, recognizing this peace that we have because we're no longer in rebellion against you, but we have repented and been embraced by you. And the peace that we have in the midst of uh, unpeaceful circumstances that might befall us because we know that you are ever there always making intercession for us i pray father that this state of great confidence in christ would be ours this christmas season and give us the opportunity as we might have to be able to share that with others who don't know truly the peace of christ May we not be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication bring our request to you and know that you are a good and gracious and merciful God willing to grant us those things that will glorify your name. I pray, Father, that you will help us indeed do that and enjoy your presence in this hour in the days to come. I pray for your blessing to be upon your people. In Christ's name, amen. Isaiah seven fourteen predicts the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Let's all stand together and take our hymn books and let's begin our worship with number 175, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel.
turn over to 179. 179. Angels from the realm of glory. Christian men rejoice, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. Luke 2, 20. 183. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
morning. We are reading from the book of Luke in chapter 1, verse 57. And the word of the Lord says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in the holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of the peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you today to give you glory, you who are worthy of all glory and of all honor and power and praise. We praise you in the season of joy, in the season of peace, Lord. We praise you for the many gifts that we have received. We praise you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who we remember in the advent that he came 2,000 years ago to redeem us. Lord God, we are in a time of winter, both seasonally and culturally and here on this earth. When things around us appear to be losing their leaves and dying, when our country, we have people who are calling wickedness good and good things they're calling evil. But we are reminded of the glorious redemption that you have provided for us through that first advent, that you came into a world filled with wickedness then, with depravity, a world cursed by death, but you brought new life to us. Though we are still in the midst of these present circumstances, these pains and sorrows and sin, you have shown us a true hope. You have given us the gift of life. You have brought us up out of the hopelessness wherein you found us. We thank you, Father, 
for sending us your son so that he might perform his redemptive act, so that we might all have a great high priest who is familiar with our weakness and suffering. He is acquainted with our grief. Thank you, Father, that he knows how we have been tempted and yet has overcome every temptation and made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We ask that you would bless this time of worship, that our hearts would be fixed upon you, that you would, we would honor you and give you glory. Bless this fellowship this morning and this evening at the candlelight worship service, that, you would bring del- that it would bring delight to your heart and that it would fill us with a reflection of the fellowship that we shall have in eternity in your presence. Bless the offering that we bring today, that it would be used to glorify you and to serve your kingdom that it would be used to send out the gospel into all of the world so that your truth might be heard by those who are lost and who need you, both here in our city and also throughout all the ministries that we are serving in this church. I ask that you bless the pastor as he brings us to your word. Allow him to illuminate the text so that it would move us to a better understanding of you, that we might know you more, that we would be comforted by you and conformed to your likeness. Thank you for giving Pastor back his health and his voice and returning health to many of those who have been sick in this congregation. You are the giver of life and the one who heals, and we praise you for these blessings, Lord. Finally, as we go out into the world this week, we ask that you would provide us with opportunities to share your truth with those who we encounter. We thank you for providing us with these blessings that come with the season where it's so easy to talk about uh, you, to share your beauty and your love. We're, we're surrounded by so many traditions that point to you. When we might hear the gospel being taught through a Christmas carol, and when we know that there are so many who are stumbling blindly, hoping for meaning in the world that only provides broken promises and dissatisfaction, please give us the wisdom to knock when you have provided a door, and give us the boldness to speak when you have opened it for us. And help us to put Christ at the forefront of all of our interactions so that it would not be us who is seen, but you. Temper our hearts and our words so that you would be honored in all that we do. In your Son, Christ Jesus' holy name. Amen.
take our hymn books once more and stand and turn to number 197, Sing We Now of Christmas. We'll sing verses 1 and 2 all together. Verse 3, we will have the women sing verse and chorus by themselves. Verse 4 will be the men, verse and chorus, and then we'll all sing together verse 5. So verses 1 and 2 all together. Verse 3, women. Verse 4, men. 5 all together. Got it? 197. Amber and Church. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Lord willing, we'll finish out this section of Scripture today. <coughs> in the next two weeks, I'm going to have a special message for Christmas and New Year's. So then we'll return to the book of Hebrews chapter 5 in, in a couple of weeks. This morning we'll look at verses 14 through 16, which focuses on our great high priest. It is Jesus, our great high priest, who will help and enable us to hold fast our confession and draw near to God. This phrase, great high priest, is indicated in four. 14, this is the first and only time that I've found that a priest is so described, that is, a great high priest. <clears throat> now, this would make sense on a number of counts, particularly here in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, as we mentioned, emphasizes the supremacy 
of Jesus Christ. And thus the term great, as an adjective here, is fitting. And so far this sermon, as it's unfolded, has demonstrated Jesus Christ to be great, to be supreme, to be greater than all. And from the very beginning, he's greater than all the prophets. <coughs> then, a le- excuse me. <coughs> then a lengthy uh, section here that talks about Jesus being greater than, all, than the angels, the angels who, who brought the, the law, the covenant, the old covenant. And then he was greater than Moses. And then greater than Joshua, who led them into the promised land. That's kind of how it unfolds. Chapter 5, when you get to it, another priest is mentioned, Melchizedek, and Jesus is greater than him as well. Jesus is the great high priest. We know Jesus is greater than all, certainly would be so, because Jesus is indeed God. He takes on the form of a servant, but in him all deity dwells. Now that would be enough for us to praise his holy name. But this preacher in this sermon wants us to have also a practical application for this great high priest. This theology that we need to know has a great benefit to us in a practical way. Because he's going to emphasize that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who is the mediator between God and man, hence a priest. In verse 9 of chapter 4, we remember that there remains, as it's described, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. (coughs) This is why Joshua didn't accomplish perfectly all that was promised because God's people still remain and there, there is a rest that remains. He's speaking of a glorified state in the presence of the fullness of God. It is pictured and portrayed as going into a physical promised land. But really what is promised is this eternal state with God, a condition, beloved, that is beyond our imagination. We don't have the capacity, I would say, in our, in our finite mind to grasp the infinite glory of what it might be to be in the presence of God. It's a state of joy. We know joy, but this is the fullness of joy. It's a state of peace, as we talked about with these Advent candles, to remind us. But a peace that is going to surpass anything that you could imagine. Hope. Always. An assurance, if you will. That's what faith is, as he'll describe in chapter 11. And love, a love that abounds in an immeasurable way flowing from the very throne of God. It is a unique paradise. A unique paradise for which you were created to dwell personally in a unique relationship with God, not as a collective that will be gathered every tribe, every tongue, every people, but not just corporately to be there as some massive group, but individually in communion with God. It's beyond 
our thoughts. It's what our hearts long for, really. It is the realization of the hope as we hear the Lord say, Come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. That's the Sabbath rest that he's talking about. The one that will grant you this is none other than our great high priest, Jesus, who's mentioned here in verse 14. Leading up to this, if you remember back to verse 10, it says we need to enter into that rest by resting from our works. That is, have faith in his. Rest in Christ. Come to him. In verse 11, it, it, it doesn't say, okay, well, this is like, you know, you, you come in and do nothing. No, that you're changed internally then, and you're called then to actively engage and strive to enter into that rest by faith. Verse 11. That characterization of striving is manifested in obedience, obedience to the sovereign Lord, Jesus Christ, whom we confess. Now, the section that we're in here, 14 through 16, there's two other concepts that are brought in that are roughly parallel. They say it slightly different, admonitions, if you will. I want you to notice verse 14 and verse 15. They compare to some degree with this idea of resting and striving. Verse 14 is an admonition, a directive, if you will, to hold fast our confession. Jesus is Lord. Continue in that confession. Continue to believe. And then, verse 15, notice here, another admonition is given Based on that, then draw near. Draw near to this throne of grace with confidence. So you're going to hold fast your confession and draw near with confidence. Can I tell you how that will be accomplished? Through Jesus Christ. Indeed, he is our great high priest. All of these directives, whether it's resting, striving, holding, or drawing, all of those are accomplished by faith, but it is through the mediatorial work of this great high priest. And hence, the emphasis then is on Jesus. Let's read this closing section here, verse 14. As he concludes, he'll say, since, since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let us pray. Father, I pray these truths will be 
emblazoned on our hearts, and ultimately one truth, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord, who is indeed our great high priest. May it overflow in confidence to come before you, not in our own strength, but in Christ's, and to confess Christ as Lord moment by moment. I pray this because it would exalt your holy name, and it would be great joy to our souls. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) Now, beginning in verse 14, there is this phrase, great high priest, but, but we've touched on this idea of Jesus being a priest from the very beginning in the book of Hebrews. Walk back with me with some of these texts, if you wish. Look at one, chapter 1 and verse 3. He talks about his priestly work. Who is this great high priest? Radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. What he's saying is, this is God. This is God who does what? He makes purification for our sin. This is the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. What your sins toned for, it'll come about by God. And how will God do it? Through the sacrifice of Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 17. Here, emphasizing his office and his work, expanding it further, he'll say about Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh, which we commemorate this Christmas season. He was made like his brothers, that is, he took on the form of a servant, a human, (coughs) in every respect. Fully man. This is God, fully God, always, but now he's fully man. He takes it on in every respect, so, and here's the purpose for the incarnation, so that he might be a faithful high priest. All the high priests that went before were not perfect in the execution of their tasks. Here is one who is, and he is faithful to it in the service of God. To do what? Ultimately, to make propitiation for our for the sins of the people. This is parallels with the idea of purification in in chapter 1, verse 3. Propitiation is made. That is the covering, the payment, the appeasement of the very wrath of God. Why? How did that accomplish? Verse 18, he himself has suffered. When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That, again, will be repeated and expanded on in our section in chapter 4. The priesthood of Jesus from this point forward, which, oh, by the way, chapter 3 opens up that way as well, I notice, he, he is called the high priest of our confession. 3, verse 1. <coughs> so you get some statements, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, concerning the priesthood of Christ. Here in chapter 4, when this phrase is given, the great high priest, from this point forward to the rest of the book, if you want to understand what it's about, the supremacy of Christ, and particularly in his mediatorial work. Chapter 4 through 10, specifically, is going to address the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and this is the most comprehensive explanation of it. In the entire Bible, 
So if you want to understand it, this is where you will look. There are other allusions to Christ and his priesthood, but here this preacher hammers down chapter after chapter about Jesus Christ, our great high priest. What he's doing is preaching an expository sermon written here, of course, in in a compact form that we can read it today, but nevertheless, that's essentially what he's doing. He's He's going through an exposition of Psalm 110, and here specifically concerning his priesthood, that you are a priest forever, Psalm 110.4, after the order of Melchizedek. And you'll pick up Melchizedek in your reading of chapter 5. You've got a couple weeks to read up and get ahead on that. This section this morning, however, will consider... We'll consider excuse me. <coughs> still have some remnants of coughing from last week, and I apologize. But we're going to consider at least three aspects of Jesus, our great high priest. In case I don't get to all of it, I wrote it on the back of your worship folder this morning so you can at least kind of track me. Sometimes I get a little off track, but this is where I'd like to go in any case. Three aspects here, and it, it, it will be the basis by, by looking at those three aspects of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. This will be then the basis for are holding fast the confession, which we want to do, and drawing near with confidence, which we also want to do. That's a great privilege. And we need to be more confident in Christ and draw more near to God through Christ, our great high priest. He's going to enable us to draw near and hold fast by his mediatorial work, which Uh, We won't push into that today, but we'll get it in time. But he is ever living, that is, he's doing that right now. That is how you can hold fast your confession, remain in the faith. That is how you can draw near with confidence. It is through this mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at this first (coughs) work that our great high priest does found in verse 14. And when you look at a text like this, you can ask yourself two questions always, and I do. What does it mean? And why does it matter? You have to understand what the authorial's tent is. What did the author mean? And then what was he trying to get a point, the point trying to get across? What does it matter? Here's the phrase. We have this great high priest who has, note this, passed through the heavens. Identifies specifically, so don't miss it, it's Jesus, the Son of God. He's called our great high priest. This great here that's mentioned draws attention to the uniqueness of Jesus. And he's already gone down the list. Many of these prophets, angels, Moses, Joshua, Eventually, he'll say Melchizedek too. They might need a lot to us, but in the early church, to the Hebrews, absolutely. This was a major statement to say that, to focus on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The high priest served in a most honorable capacity. But great here demonstrates that Christ is greater than all that came before 
and all that will come after. <coughs> Notice here also, it isn't just a great high priest. The preacher emphasizes that this is our, each of us individually, all of us collectively, our great high priest. This adds a personal touch to it. To those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, they are engaged with him in a personal way. And I'd also say, to say our high priest, this also emphasizes the exclusivity of this person, Jesus, who is a mediator, not for everybody, but for his people. It is our high priest. It's not generically spread out like peanut butter. This is a specific treasure given to his people. The high priest who would typify Christ, Christ being the fulfillment of the great high priest, that high priests, which you read in the Old Testament, they didn't mediate for those that are outside of God's covenant. They didn't make sacrifices for the Egyptians. And when they went in the promised land, they didn't make sacrifices for the Canaanites. Made sacrifices to God on behalf of God's covenant people. The mediation that is provided here is for God's people. As we'll see later on in this text, Jesus comes to atone for his people. For those who are united to him by faith in what is called the new covenant. And you want a glimpse of that, turn to chapter 9. And we'll look at this text twice in chapter 9. Two sections of it. I just kind of want to give you a preview of it. Because this kind of explains it. Make sure we know who this high priest is and how it relates to us. Notice the preacher here in chapter 9 and verse 11 explains... When it, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he's comparing the old covenant to the new, and he explains it here in this parenthesis, <coughs> not, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he comes, this more perfect idea, this greater and more perfect, is, is um, a way of emphasizing the, the fulfillment of all those types and shadows, what they pointed to. They pointed to a priest that would come, and that is Jesus Christ. The, this, this sacrifice in the tent, the tent would have been the tabernacle, and then when they made a permanent structure, that's the temple, but it's the same facility. Verse 12 He entered, and note this, the difference. He enters once for all into the holy place. One time. All the priests before came regularly, year after year. This is why Christ is said to be greater. This is the finality. This is the fulfillment of all that has been pictured. And what does he do? He he doesn't come in with symbols, that's goats and calves that are mentioned. But, the, but, his, but by means of, notice, his own blood. And thus, through the 
sacrifice of Christ in his own blood, he secures an eternal redemption. Do you know this great high priest? Is he yours? And he goes on to explain that what went on before was just, was just um, <coughs> symbols. He says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? In other words, those pointed to a promise of a coming great high priest. This is Christ. This Christmas season when we commemorate his birth, this is what we're celebrating, the one who has come. How much more or greater, if you will, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, verse 15, this is the conclusion, and where we're getting to the point of his mediatorial work, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them, that actually redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. (coughs) There's the law. You broke it. I broke it. What's the resolution? Not a symbol, but a substance. The reality, Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to return to chapter 9 in just a minute, but let me say something about this. This, pro- excuse me, <coughs> this promised eternal inheritance described as a Sabbath rest in chapters 3 and 4, this blood atonement that is made, it's not generically thrown out there, but it is for those that are called. Do you see that in verse 15? Who is he going to mediate for? Those that are called. Those whom the Father has given. Those whom the Son calls. And they, how will they know? How will we know? How will anyone know? We hear his voice. That is, we respond in repentance and faith and live in obedience to Christ This is the work of the mediatorial work of the high priest, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who doesn't make salvation possible. It isn't probable. It's actual. And the assurance of it is that it is final. There was only one sacrifice. There will not be a redo. And that sacrifice is for those that are called in Christ. And, beloved, those that are called in Christ will not apostatize the faith. They'll never turn away. They need to strive. They need to enter. But the entrance and the striving and all of that has been secured by Jesus Christ. He is indeed far greater than any other high priest that came before. Notice the emphasis here, even in the text here, do you see it? Three times he talks about the eternality 
of the very work of Christ. That is the permanence. It's, the word here used is eternal. But notice verse 12, the eternal redemption. Verse 13, the eternal spirit. And verse 15, the eternal inheritance. It isn't just that it lasts forever. Of course it would. But he lives forever. That, that's where your assurance will rest. That's where it stands. It stands in our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who is passed through the heavens, the phrase says, that is his divine accomplishment. And by him, them who has passed, then we can hold fast our confession. We hold fast by faith in Christ this eternal inheritance that we have in him. Do you know him? Can you hold on to eternal redemption, eternal spirit, and eternal inheritance? Christ can. (laughs) Hold on to him. Behold him as your great high priest, and you will hold fast, and you will enter in. Because it's already been accomplished, that's the phraseology here, passed through the heavens. The high priest that symbolized and portrayed all of this had to, and I think that's where he's getting at when he's emphasizing this passing through, he had to bring the sacrifice symbolically of this very event that it points to through specific designated areas, at least three, in the tabernacle and the tent. Uh, Tabernacle and the temple, I meant to say. The tabernacle was the tent in the wilderness, and then when they built the uh, temple, that was the fixed place. But it had three sections to it. If you've seen diagrams of it, you may have a Bible that shows that. But think of it as essentially concentric rectangles, if you will, one inside the other. In the outside, you have an outer court where the people are. And then you have an inner court that that closes in a little more compactly. That wasn't for any person. That was just for the priests. And then you have this most inner court called the Holy of Holies or Most Holy Place, where only once a year the high priest could actually enter into that room. This passing through that he's speaking of, that symbolized that. Going through all of these courts, if you will. From the divine perspective with Jesus Christ, he takes on human flesh, descends from heaven and passes through all stages of life into the the most holy place, the ascent into the height of glory, into, as it's described here, heavens itself. That's what it's imaging. Now, I'm not just creating this in my own thinking and mind. This is where I wanted you to hold in chapter (coughs) 9, because the preacher explains it for us. He'll provide this further detail. Look at verse 24 if you're in chapter 9. For Christ has not entered into holy places 
made with hands, the temple, tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Underline that, on our behalf. The presence of God on our behalf means he's engaged in this mediator work between God and man. He, he, he descends to mankind to bring us to God. That's the point. Nor was it, verse 25, to offer himself repeatedly, as I mentioned. The high priest enters the holy place <coughs> every year, and note this, not with his own blood, <laughs> For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, that is Christ, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. Christ has borne the judgment for all that are in him. Do you know him? Is he your great high priest? who is ascended into heaven and right now is interceding on your behalf. If you have that kind of advocate, do you think you can hold fast your confession? <laughs> do, do you think that you could go before him with boldness? This great high priest is Jesus. He is said to be here the Son of God. God himself, our great high priest, is said to be Jesus, Savior, Deliverer. As God, he will be judge. All men will stand before him, Jesus, the Son of God, and he will either be their advocate or their adversary. Confess him as Lord. The second thing I want you to note here, not only does he pass through the heavens, it's already accomplished, he's mediating now on behalf of his people, but he does so with great empathy, and he's proven it. That's what verse 15 is about, in summary. Back to chapter 4, verse 15. All right, we have this great high priest. He's accomplished all of this. It is permanent. It is eternal. It is secure, it is accomplished, it is finished. But beyond that, do you recognize the relationship for those who are in Christ, the relationship they have with him? Let me remind you of that. For we don't have a high priest that's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now we've pointed to this <coughs> reference a time or two, but I think it's a good source for us to drink in, in, uh, continually from. There are those priests which you could find out about in the Old Testament who actually didn't really care about the people. And I would imagine there's many more that aren't even mentioned that were more interested in their own office and their own prestige and their own power and their own privilege like many today they didn't really care about the people 
Jesus, if you remember, when he confronted many of them in his day, he called them hypocrites. Whitewashed tombs. In other words, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. He could see into the very heart of men, what we can't see. He would tell them in Matthew 23, if you remember, hey, here's what you do. You, you put heavy burdens on, on people, hard for them to bear. bear. You, 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 you lay that on their shoulders, and you're not willing to move a finger. I mean, this is what the elites do, by the way. They make all these rules, regulations, and hard things to do, but they're not under those. They're exempted. You know, they, they want you to walk from A to B, but they're going to take a private jet. That's the point. Well, the same attitude existed there. This was sinful men. Jesus is totally different. He's our great high priest. As I mentioned before, remember, he says, come to me. Take my yoke. In other words, take my, the burden that I give you. There's a burden, but it's easy. It's light in contrast to what these wicked leaders would do. It's easy and it's light because Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is the one who is bearing the brunt of the burden. Can you imagine, you, you folks with kids, I'm sure you've done it, where your kid wanted to help you carry something incredibly heavy. You say, okay, grab it, and, and you're carrying it along. Okay, he's carrying a little bit, <laughs> but he isn't carrying the brunt of it because you have compassion on him. You, you have empathy sympathy, if you will, concern, care, love. In the incarnation, Jesus Christ does mediate for his people, but he does so with great empathy. He takes on human flesh, and that for a number of reasons, no doubt, but by in so doing, can you imagine this is God, the creator of heaven and earth, takes on human flesh, and it, which that experientially allows him to identify with the very weaknesses of his people. When you think about God, there's two theological words you need to at least have in your thoughts, in your vocabulary. At least the idea of them, you don't have to memorize them, but one is transcendence and the other is imminence. Both in reference to God, transcendence means that God is, think about it, God is a spirit. He is outside of human experiences, perceptions, and, and grasp. God would know what all of that is because he's God. He knows everything. But he, but he doesn't know it experientially is my point. Imminence, would, on the contrast, would mean that God is knowable and perceivable and graspable. That is, he would have an identification with mankind. And, and philosophers have dealt with this a great degree. I won't bore you with all of that. But the point is, think about it. God is so far above. How would he have any connection to that which is below? It is through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This great high priest, he takes on the form of a servant and experiences all that life has to offer. He even suffers, and he dies. 
Remember in Matthew, we've read this before, and you'll hear it around Christmas time, of what the prophets spoke about, Matthew 1, 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. If you're not sure what Emmanuel is, Matthew defines it for us, which means God with us. This is the transcendent God becoming imminent with mankind, Emmanuel, that's what it means, God with us. It's demonstrated from the, from the very cradle through the rest of his life to the very cross in his suffering and then his ascension as he passes into the heavens, this great crowning and glorification. It is through this one, our great high priest, that we will know the transcendent God. And might I put it this way? This is the only way you will know him. There are no other ways. How will you know God? The only God. No one has ever seen him, Jesus would say. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, John 1.18. The, the word known is, is how we get the word to expose or expository. It means to explain. The only way you're going to know God is through Jesus Christ. This way we exalt Jesus Christ. It is through Christ will, as our mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This great high priest always ministers in truth, righteousness, and justice because he's God. But he sympathizes with our weaknesses because he's experienced the travail of humanity. He's literally walked in your shoes, beloved. There's never excuse for sin. Sin's wrong. It should be confessed. But here, it demonstrates the compassion that God has for those who struggle against it. You ever feel really awful after you have sinned and failed to do what you should do or did something they shouldn't? You wonder, what's God going to do with me? Will he shut his ear? He never shuts the ear to a repentant sinner. Know that. As bad as you feel about it, understand he actually knows and has <laughs> compassion with your weakness. Experientially, he has compassion. Confess your sin, he'll always forgive it. He's faithful, remember, and he's just. He will forgive. The disciples had a hard time with that. If you remember in Matthew 18, I'll remind you of it. They said, well, Lord, how often should I forgive my, my brother if he sins against me? And they were trying to be magnanimous to say, seven times? In other words, that's quite a bit, really, if they do the same transgression time after time, well, you know, is seven, that's pretty good, isn't it? Jesus said, no, seven times, but 70 times seven. And you'd have to have quite the chart to keep up with that. <laughs> the same infraction, that many times, you understand the point that he's making to infinity. Forgiveness is amazing. 
He sympathizes with your weakness. Come to him time and time again. He will forgive. Do you know this great high priest? His grace that he grants is always abounding. Paul would remind us in Romans 5 that the law comes. It demonstrates that that we are indeed transgressors of it. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Sin reigns in death, but grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where you will find grace, which will point here in a moment. It is in this mediator, Christ. Now, some people are cautious to say that. Aren't you giving people a license to go ahead and sin time after time after time after time? And Paul will explain in the next chapter of Romans, Romans 6. No, that is not within the realm of possibility. Because somebody brought to life in Christ will not continue in an unbroken pattern of sin. But you know what they don't have to do? They don't have to keep a chart and measure how many infractions they do so that they they can know, well, when's my time going to run out? It doesn't. Christ is a empathetic towards our weakness, particularly our sin. Now you know why he's the great high priest, the only one. He, he, he knows our weakness because he's experientially been exposed to that. That's what it's talking about. He understands it. But notice back to verse 15 in our text. The preacher is also assured to tell us that he does so, even though he's exposed to all of it, he does, yet without sin. Tempted in every respect, all points, but emphasize here that Jesus never sinned, and that's a crucial point. Never committed one sin. If he commits one, he would have broken one and then not fulfilled all righteousness, the righteousness that is required, and none of us would be redeemed. Now, I know some people scratch their heads on this, and you may see it from time to time. They, they think, looking at this logically, or at least from the mind of man, well, <clears throat> how could his temptation then be real if he, if he, if he couldn't sin? I say he, could, he didn't sin, but beyond that, he could not sin. And the answer is there in our immediate context, and of course, the rest of the Bible, but notice verse 14, so you have to go very far. Jesus cannot sin. He says, yet he didn't sin. Why did he not sin? Not that the temptation wasn't real. It's because he's God. You see that? Jesus, verse 14, who is he? The Son of God. That is to say he is divine. And, of course, we've been through that already. I mentioned chapter 1. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He's God. I've also mentioned in Colossians 2.9 that even in the bodily form, when Christ took on the form of a servant, it isn't that he gave up anything. He didn't give up his deity. It was, and I like the Christmas song we sing, veiled 
in flesh, incarnate deity. That is, we couldn't see the fullness of it because it, it appeared veiled to us. We're not, we, we couldn't see the fullness of it. He gives a glimpse of the glory in what we call the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they, they fall down like dead man, remember? Just a little glimpse of it. Christ is more glorious than we could ever imagine. For in him, 2.9 of Colossians, Paul would say, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Never separate. 100% God. 100% man. He was fully human, but he's fully God. and Therefore, he cannot lie. He cannot cheat. He cannot steal. He cannot sin. Theologians call this the hypostatic union of Christ. Taking on flesh is addition, not subtraction. He took on the fullness of man without the corruption of sin, hence the virgin birth, to avoid the lineage of Adam. Brought about by the directly by the power of the Holy Spirit. He exists, beloved, but in the state of for which God's good creation was designed. A human state, without corruption, without sin. This is the state in which he'll continue to exist and exist now as our great high priest in a glorified state, a state of humanity, full humanity, in which sin is no longer a part. And that's not our experience, so it's hard for us to imagine that. But that is what he will do with all of those that are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about getting a glorified body. That is one without sin. It is profound. There is a certain mystery of understanding, I admit. But some people still say, well, then, was the temptation really real? Did, did, did he really experience, since he couldn't commit sin, did he, did he really experience the, the fullness of temptation? And I think that's our misunderstanding of what temptation actually is. Temptation is is really a testing of sorts. Surviving it proves what you are, and failing it also does prove it proves you are a sinner. If you have pure gold, it doesn't mean the fire isn't hot, just because there's no impurities in it. Christ not only really was tempted, but beloved, whatever level of temptation that you have ever been in, he has exceeded that. I'll just, for sake of time, I'll just quote it for you. In chapter 12, when we get to that, it's encouraging us then to see what's gone before, particularly the chapter of faith, and it talks about Jesus Christ, our perfecter of our faith, endured the cross, despised the shame, and then now has ascended to the throne of God that has passed through the heavens. That's the imagery there. 
He endured great hostility. And he did so so that you wouldn't grow faint. Because in your struggle, and I'm at 12.4, I'll just quote it for you. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. <laughs> you get it? You, you, you broke at some point in time. All of us have. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The difference with Jesus Christ, he never broke. In fact, I would say he never bent. It had nothing on him. Oh, but did he endure it? Yes. We all fail. We all break because of our weakness. And Jesus experientially understands and can be empathetic towards that suffering because he endured the full fury of God's wrath. Never broke. Never bent. And at some point in our experiences, we do. Jesus experienced the full wrath of God against sin with with great drops of blood. He would mediate on our behalf as he prayed. On the cross, he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet he bowed his head and said, it is finished. Don't think for one moment that Jesus doesn't understand your suffering. In our hymn book, we, we have a hymn that I'll share later in a greater detail. It's 164. We haven't sung it. We probably should at some point in time. To understand the empathy that Christ has for his people. This is written by a man by the name of Charles Weigel, who was a resident of my alma mater for... I guess, 15 years before he passed in 1966, I think, before I attended college there. But they did name a building after him, Charles Weigel Music Conservatory or something to that direct. But I heard this song a lot in the chapels and the church services in those days. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus. Since I found in him a friend so strong and true, I'd love to tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind and true. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. Beloved, I hope you know the love of God in Jesus Christ. It is one who will lovingly recognize your weakness. Go to him as your mediator. Confess your sin. He is faithful and just and will forgive. And he doesn't do so that, that in a mechanical way. The love of Christ is more than you could possibly imagine. It is that love of Christ which will ha- allow you, beloved, to hold fast in your confession of him. The more you know him. It'll help you then finally to actually go ahead and draw near to him, recognizing who he is as your great high priest, and that's found in verse 16. Beloved, what you need is help. I need help. We need it every day. And it's packaged in two words, mercy and grace. Do you see it? Let us therefore, let us then, our text reads, with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This throne of grace here is looking to the heavens. Christ, Christ is there, seated at the right hand of the majesty in high. That is, here in, in authority, in power. All authority has been given to the Son. This is then a priestly king. And he will rule as king. He'll do so with a rod of iron, see Psalm 2. And so the, the call is then the, to, to kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. But from that very role of authority as king of all the earth, what flows? Grace and mercy. Continually flowing. In that most holy place we talked about where the high priest would go passing through the courtyards and into the most holy place there was a a box it's an ark and on the ark of the covenant which symbolized the very throne of God angelic beings were put on either side and right in the middle of it was a seat. Inside the box, they, they had the law. They had the, the manna, which demonstrated God's provision of them, and they're grumbling, right? The law, which they broken. Aaron's rod that budded when they rejecting God's leadership. All, all of this really capturing in a picture form the sins of the people. The righteousness of God, and yet the people rebel against that. It pictures the throne of God there. When the priest goes in, they they sprinkle the blood on that throne, the seat of it. But they never sit down. They don't have the authority to sit down because their work is never complete. By contrast, as we've talked about, Jesus enters into the heavenlies, not the one made by hand. To make atonement and is now seated on that seat of mercy. Do you get the picture? It's a throne of grace. Our majestic priestly king, Jesus Christ, the Lord, who then grants mercy and grace. Mercy is simply not giving us what we deserve. Judgment. Grace is giving us what we, uh, or, or did I say it right? Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. It is a free gift. And that's what we need. Mercy for the judgment that we're due. Grace would be expressed in all the gifts that he has given to us, the love, the joy, the peace, the hope, all of that in Christ. Our great high priest, we need both mercy and grace, and perhaps more often than you think. So we turn to him for help. And beloved, here's the truth. 
Turn to him so that you're going to find it. You will always find help in him. You'll always find mercy. You'll always find grace. It, it's unimaginable. Go to any other priest, any other person. You're, you're not always going to find mercy and grace. You're always going to find it with Christ. Turn to him, he will not turn away. What an incredible truth. And so then, beloved, you, you can see how now you can come to, with him in confidence. If I call somebody for a favor, for help, or for assistance, they may help, they may not, depending on their time. Jesus will always help. He will always dispense mercy and grace. Come to him. So there you come to him in, in boldness and in confidence. And the picture is that of a throne room. We studied Esther in the <coughs> training class. And you remember the famous words? She needed to mediate on behalf of her people who were going to perish. And so she needed to go into the king to tell him what's going on. And she knew what the circumstances were by doing so under that culture. She could very well be executed and most likely would be under great judgment. And her response was this, if I perish, I perish. She didn't go in with confidence, is my point, and understandably. That's not the way it is with Christ. That's not the way it is with the throne of mercy and grace. It is a throne of mercy and grace, and it is always there to help in your time of need. No, no one could go, just walk into the holy place in the temple or tabernacle, right? There, there was only one, the high priest, and only once a year. But here he's calling us to come into the very throne room of God, into the very most holy place. We're able to, to draw near to him. Because through the sacrifice of Christ, our sins have been propitiated. They have been atoned for. They have been paid for. God's wrath is appeased. So now how can you draw near to God? You can come with great confidence and boldness. You remember on the cross when Christ died? He demonstrates this symbolically even in the death of Christ. You'll find it in Matthew 27. When he yields up his spirit, Matthew reminds us, oh, behold, look over there at the temple. That veil that separated the most holy place is ripped in two now. From the top to the bottom, showing that it is God who accomplished that. And now, beloved, you can go straight into God, the very throne of God, to find mercy and grace and help. And it's open. Come now. No more barrier. You can come to Christ. And by coming to him into the very presence of God. He'll say later in chapter 10. I'll just read it to you to conclude. Chapter 10, 19. Because he's going to expand on these thoughts here in Hebrews. So read through this mediatorial work from chapter 4 through 10 during the next few weeks if you have time. I, I highly encourage it. The concluding remark to this mediatorial work is this. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence then to enter into holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you know him? If you do, you will hold fast your confession and draw near with confidence. Let us pray. Father, I pray even in this day and time that you will take your word to be treasured in our heart that we may look to Christ in Christ alone for mercy and grace to help indeed in our time of need. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now to ponder and think on these things. If you have not confessed Christ as Lord, you may do so now. Not to me, but to him. He is the mediator between God and men. Take a moment to think on these things and respond directly to our Lord. Father, I do pray that um, all of us as your people would truly hold fast our confession of faith even in these awful and wicked times and do so by drawing near to you. May your presence overflow your people and grant us great joy and hope peace and love in Christ our Lord, the mediator between God and man, our great high priest. I pray in his name. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 148 in our hymnals. 148, he keeps me singing.
While reading in my daily Bible reading, I came upon Isaiah chapter 42, and I thought this was, would really be apropos to this sermon. It says this, Thus saith God the Lord, who created heaven and the earth and stretched them out, who spread them, <clears throat> spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, who, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful that you have reached down and pulled us up out of the miry clay of sin that our lives were before we knew you, and you have shown us and covered us with the blood of Christ and made us righteous. Lord, to declare your holiness your righteousness, your goodness to all others. Lord, help us to do these things now during this Christmas season when we celebrate your birth. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 